The epistle reading today from 1 Corinthians 2 is a continuation of Paul's letter, encouraging the church at Corinth to rethink their reliance on conventional understandings of wisdom and strength in light of Christ, who redefines them both. A reading from 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish, but we speak God's wisdom secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of the glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Gospel reading today comes from Matthew 5 and is a continuation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Immediately following his reversal of the prevailing religious logic in the Beatitudes. May we hear in this ancient teaching a word of wisdom for today. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. I learned a lot of important things in seminary. I learned how to parse out textual variants in Greek and Hebrew. I learned about the alternative theories on the sources of the synoptic gospels, but what nobody taught me, maybe what nobody could have taught me, was just how tempting it was gonna be to use a song from Godspell just almost every week. <laughs> so for those of you who are counting, I apologize for having referenced it now twice in the first 15 months or so that we've been here. When your work is getting up in front of people on a weekly basis, you keep a mental catalog of the illustrations, and nobody wants to be Godspell girl, so <laughs> maybe it's not something you would have noticed, and now I've brought all this attention to it, so there's no getting around it, and I'm okay with that. Part of why Godspell is so often on my mind is that I love it so much. 
I really appreciate what that musical is able to do with the stories from the Gospels. Written by Stephen Schwartz in the 70s and often quoting directly large passages from scripture, it was my first introduction to a way of reading the stories of Jesus playfully, communicating through clownish behavior and the appearance of the cast, the essential truths of the parables and teachings of Jesus. The songs, too, were a chance to inject new life and energy into established religious tradition. Only a handful of the musical numbers are actually original to Schwartz. For the rest of them, he pulled either directly from scripture or more often from Episcopal hymns and the Book of Common Prayer. But the song that was based on today's gospel reading, which is what our lively gospel acclamation was pulling from, is an original, or at least an original take on the words of Jesus. But Schwartz takes these verses in a direction that I can only imagine would have caused Jesus some frustration, which would have been a familiar sensation for him as misunderstanding his teaching was kind of a hallmark of his disciples. For those of you who haven't seen Godspell, the song begins, you are the light of the world. But if that light is under a bushel, you've lost something kind of crucial. You gotta stay bright to be the light of the world. And the rest of the song has a similar feel. You are the salt of the earth, but if that salt has lost its flavor, it ain't got much in its favor. You can't have that fault and be the salt of the earth. And then finally, you are the city of God, but if that city's on a hill, it's kind of hard to hide it well. You've got to stay pretty in the city of God. And while I can't and won't criticize the rhythm or rhyme of the song, I do have one objection, and it's this, that each one of the three metaphors is cast here as if they were a to-do list, rather than a revelation of what ultimately comes to us as pure grace. In the Gospel According to Godspell, Schwartz focuses in on the metaphor of the salt and uses it as the key to interpret the ones that follow. So it's as if Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, only so that he can then offer the harsh reminder, so you better not mess that up. You can't have that fault and be the salt of the earth. You've got to stay pretty in the city of God. You've got to stay bright to be the light of the world. Despite the upbeat tempo, the whole thing starts to sound like a cheery little divine threat. (laughs) Don't you let that light go out. You have got a job to do. Maybe it's not how Schwartz intended the words to be heard, but as I encountered the show for the first time as a religiously strict little eight-year-old, it certainly is how my adolescent brain took it in. And why wouldn't I? The teaching of my church and the prevailing wisdom of our our pull-ourselves-up-by-our-bootstraps culture had done nothing but compliment it my entire life. Of course it's a to-do list. Isn't that what faith is all about anyway? It came as no surprise at all that Jesus would take this opportunity to remind his disciples, to remind me, that there's always more I could be doing to make my light shine. And for that matter, if I don't, there's always the chance I'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot like so much tasteless salt, whatever that means. 
the truth I hear in this text now is something a lot more graceful, by which I mean a lot more full of grace. Grace, that divine quality that says you are enough. There is enough. Life's gifts abound. It's only been in returning to this text, on the other side of the realization that every reading is an interpretation, that I've been able to find in it this word of grace, of abundance. And it's not just that every reading is an interpretation. It's also that we use our interpretations of one part of scripture to affect how we read all the rest. We each read the Bible under our own little magnifying glass, amplifying the images that fit with our theology, what we hold to be most deeply true. This is how we can read this passage and acknowledge that although the metaphor of the salt seems a little heavy-handed in terms of guilt, what with the losing its flavor and never ever getting it back, it doesn't seem to be the prevailing metaphor here. And it certainly doesn't seem to fall in line with the overall themes of Jesus' ministry, which was all about second chances and grace and more than enough. So what might a more grace-filled reading of this text produce in us? You are the salt of the earth. You are the city of God. You are the light of the world. Not you have it within you to be these things if you could just get your act together. You have it within you to achieve them or accomplish them or manipulate the world around you in such a way that you then can be them. No. You already are. I'm not saying it's a blanket statement that everyone is good, y'all are good, just sit back and call it a day. There's work to be done. There's personal growth to be slugged through, and it will be hard and messy, and it will drag you out of your comfort zone if you're doing it right. But I think in the kind of world Jesus is describing, you do that work from a place of inner knowing that your light, the light, is already shining within you, and it cannot be extinguished. I'm now going to say the least political, political thing I will ever say from this pulpit. In case you too lost count of the hundreds of people running for the Democratic nomination for president last fall, among them was Marianne Williamson, an author and spiritual thinker. And I have no comment about her fitness for public service. But if the contest were which candidate created the best fodder for political sketches on Saturday Night Live, she could have made it all the way to the White House because they had a field day with her. And it's clear why. It's because she has the soul of a poet and a poet's way of capturing and expressing truth, which is not exactly what we're accustomed to on the debate stage. Her claim to fame among the general public hangs mostly on one quote from her 1992 book, A Return to Love. And regardless of how you feel about her politically, I think it holds truth for us today. It reads, 
Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Your playing small does not serve the world. We are all meant to shine, as children do. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. What Williamson has captured there is the same concept that seemed to have taken hold with the earliest followers of Jesus when they began calling themselves Christians, little Christs. As it was true of Christ, so is it true of us. Our light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Our light will not be extinguished. It can, however, be put under a bushel basket. And more than a basket, we pile all sorts of things up on top, obscuring the light as it tries to shine through. One of our four-year-old's favorite activities right now is to go get a flashlight, and not the cheap little one in his room. He wants the big expensive one Daddy got for Christmas. And he wants to put his hand over the bulb, fingers squeezed tight together to watch as the light vanishes, and instead his hand glows a reddish orange. I'm not entirely sure what to picture when Jesus talks about a bushel basket, but I know well how a layer of human skin can obscure the light trying to shine through. We place our bodies, our very selves, in the way of the light all the time. And I think each of our bushel baskets, if you will, takes a different form. Most of them can be distilled down to wherever our deepest fear lies, which is usually in a sincerely believed lie about ourselves or about the world. And the problem isn't just that when we keep our light from shining, our lives feel a little bit dimmer. Jesus' metaphor extends beyond the individual level and into the level of community. When the lamp is put on the lampstand, he says, it gives light to the whole house. Your light does not shine for you alone. It should be telling for us that for Jesus, the mark of whether or not your light can be seen is whether or not you are doing good works. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and praise God. In other words, you'll know a tree by its fruit. When we're bearing the fruit of good works, we can feel confident we've done the self-work we need to do. Our task is to identify the shape of our own bushel basket, whatever is covering over our light, and like lifting one finger off the flashlight at a time to peel it back so the light can shine through. Take, for example, the call to the work of justice in our call to worship from Isaiah 58. Maybe you hear passages like that 
and there's some specific work you have felt called to do. Imagine it for a moment in your mind. For some of us, there's a fear that we're going to do it wrong, that even if we put forth the effort, we won't be good or righteous. For others, perhaps it's that we're afraid we won't be capable or competent enough. And to both of these lies, the truth that sets us free is that any small step is a step in the right direction. So go on and set that basket aside. For some, the fear might be more about whether the work will be worth doing in the first place if we know we can't fully succeed. Better find something more achievable. There's the fear of not being significant enough or of losing control of the process once you've begun. But the truth is that, yes, the work is worth doing. Of course it's worth doing, even if you can't control every step, even if it isn't the most creative or unique solution, even if, as with all work, it won't be fully complete when it's time to go home for the day. So let's keep peeling back. For others, the deepest fear is of wandering away from what's familiar into terrain where those support systems may not be in place. Some are afraid of the pain that may come. It usually does. Afraid of losing stability or of being cast out and alone. But the truth, the light shines on that lie, is that sometimes in seeking to do the work, we find new community, new support. We learn that loss and pain may come, but new joy and meaning ultimately fill the empty spaces they create. And for some of us, there is a deeply held fear that if others could see, really see what was going on inside us, they wouldn't want us anymore. It leads to a frenzy of activity, running around helping everyone we can help. But when we're honest, we know that this work still is keeping us in the dark. There's no light shining through that. And the truth is, you are loved and wanted and worthy without all the doing, without all the good works. But if instead our helping of others flows out of an abundance of grace and self-worth, then it's letting our light shine. We all have a basket, and we all have work to do to knock it off. Let's be honest with each other. Despite its flaws, I'm not going to stop listening to Godspell. That's just not in the cards for me. But I do think that at least when it comes to this passage about letting your light shine, there's a better song that we can try to get stuck in our heads. It's a song we were taught as children. And while some of the songs we were taught as children led us to internalize some really problematic concepts, this... <laughs> is one that instead could help us to grasp with childlike simplicity the grace in Jesus' words in this passage. Maybe you've already guessed where this is going. 
this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. When Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, he's saying, in the same way that we don't cover over the lamp on the lampstand, don't pile onto yourself covering over your light. Instead, set it on the lampstand. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, and give the world the gift of seeing what it looks like when you are fully attuned to God's Spirit, when you've fully uncovered all the junk getting in the way of your light, that you might share it, and that it might give light to everyone in the house. Amen.